the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Welcome to The Advocate with your host, Nick Phillips. And now, here's your host, Nick Phillips. Good evening, Cleveland. Nick Phillips with you with another edition of The Advocate. Thank you so much for joining us this Sunday evening. I'm joined tonight by Kathy Lux, former mayor of North Road. Kathy, thank you for joining me. Oh, my pleasure. Good evening, everybody. Always good having you here. It's nice to be here, Nick. Well, we're early May, Tuesday, big primary election, and Ohio has a lot of decisions to make. Yes. Uh, tonight, we're very pleased to have with us Jim Renacci, who's a candidate for governor of the state of Ohio. Uh, I can't call you governor yet. Congressman Renacci, thank you for joining us. Thank you, Nick. Uh, always good to be with you. Same same here. We've been uh, with you since the congressional years, which you did a fantastic job. And uh, now it's the governor, the governor's race. And Tuesday is a big day. And uh, we're glad you're joining us tonight because uh, as the campaign has been going on, there, there are things that I guess you have heard in the state, what people want to know about the governorship, about the state of Ohio, and about the current issues of the day. Now that we're sort of in the 11th hour before the primary election, what are some of the things you think people really need to know about and think about when they go to the polls on Tuesday? Well, thanks, Nick. And look, it's interesting. I've now been traveling uh, since last June, but I was actually traveling 2019-2020 as well uh, through the Ohio's Future Foundation uh, long before COVID hit, talking to Ohioans, trying to find out what the pulse is. Uh, But clearly, the pulse changes all the time. And Governor DeWine caused the pulse to change drastically um, in 2020 when uh, when the lockdowns and shutdowns began. But today, the biggest issues as I travel around, number one is inflation. Uh, you know, how, how do we uh, how, how do we manage with the inflation skyrocketing? Uh, but other than that, it comes down to local issues. Uh, school, uh, people are tired of CRT being pushed, uh, social emotional learning. Uh, comprehensive sex education for teen, uh, for uh, kindergarten through third grade. Uh, they also are very upset that this governor has not stepped up and signed House Bill 61, which basically says biological men have to compete in men's sports. And they also want to see an education system where the dollars follow the child no matter where he or she wants to go. So that's a really big issue, um, illegal immigration has now become a big issue because we are now in the top uh, five states for um, overdose addiction, drugs, fentanyl coming in uh, all the way from the border, and uh, illegals uh, being uh, actually transported to many states. So that's become a big issue. Election integrity is another big issue. People are concerned uh, with that. And, uh, of course, uh, their Second Amendment rights, and life. So you hear that a lot with Republicans. But I'll tell you the one thing that most people aren't aware of uh, as I travel the state, um, but you could tell when you do talk to Republicans. Mm-hmm. 35% of Republicans say they'll never vote for this governor again. 
Uh, 16% look, say they'd rather find somebody else. And this governor really only has the support of approximately 40% of the Republicans in the state of Ohio. Now, think about that. You're a sitting Republican governor, and you only have the support of about 40% of Republicans. That's not a good place to be right before a primary. No, and the primary is just uh, step one. We're talking about Republicans commenting on Republican candidates. So, oh, absolutely. So after, after yeah, the, then you got a general election. Have a general election coming up where we're going to have the Democratic side speaking up, which uh, I I think um, you know the two camps are in their own worlds right now, and the Republicans are all just thinking and considering the Republican candidates and which ones to choose. And so, so Jim, um, you know, I think one of the things that um, I hear a lot from people is their concern over the overreach of our federal government and needing someone strong uh, to lead our state to to really exercise state rights. And I wonder if you could speak to that issue and what some of the issues we're facing, um, how they could be somewhat curbed or tamped down or... Um, improved if we stood up more for our state's rights. Well, absolutely, Kathy, and and I've said that. It's one of the reasons why I left Washington. I could still be the U.S. congressman there, uh, but I finally realized that Washington was so broken, and the only place to fix Washington is having strong governors, strong states that actually say no more to the federal government overreach. And that's why I would also be a big proponent of you know, a, a uh, amendment, and a number of amendments, being one of 38 states that comes to the table and says, look, we need to require our federal government to balance its budget. That should be a number one amendment to the Constitution. And number two should be term limits, which will really take some of the power away from these individuals that are around for 30 or 40 years. They become life members of the elite political class, and then they just try and dictate to the states what, you know, what we should be doing. I got to give credit to Governor DeSantis. He's been a big leader on this when he says no more. We're just not, you put, you send illegal immigrants here and we're going to ship them back to Delaware. You tell us that uh, we have to push CRT and then we're going to defund our schools. I mean, here's a governor who's sticking up for states' rights and that's the type of governor we need in Ohio. We do. I agree wholeheartedly. Well, it's certainly true that over the last years, the last decade at least, that the role of states' governors have become more important, especially with regard to the federal government, uh, that we do a head count, it seems, almost every every year. How many Republican governors do we have? How many Democrat governors do we have? And I, I can see that happening. So uh, definitely it seems like the midterm election coming up is going to be certainly a benchmark as far as what happens with the shifting and the the evolution of political power in this country is, is so very important. Uh, with the governorship here in Ohio, what what is the number one thing you think that you can do as a governor that will help us go through this maybe future possible recession that we're facing? Well, that's a great question. We are going into a recession. Ohio is not prepared. Ohio is clearly not recession-proof, which is where we should be. Um, Florida is closer to being recession-proof. So is South Dakota. So is Texas. But let's face it, we we have a state that spends too much, Um, $80 billion. It's funny, Governor DeWine's 
going around saying we cut spending. I think he needs a. I think he needs to go back to school and get an arithmetic lesson. Going from seventy six billion to eighty billion is not a cut. We've actually added four billion dollars to our state budget under Governor DeWine. And the problem is we have ten point seven million people, but Florida has twenty two million people, twice twice the size of Ohio, but their budget is only eighty eight billion. Um, North Carolina and Georgia are approximately the same size as uh, Ohio, and their budgets are forty five and fifty five billion. So you could see Ohio is clearly spending too much, and we are not ready for a recession. We're also taxing too much. We're in the top five states for taxation. Wallet Hub uh, came out and said we're 49th, ranked 49th for income tax wow. overall when you think of all the taxes that we have in this state. So how do you prepare, especially with a state where we've lost the income tax? If you go, if you look at the books, uh, the, the dollars that are coming into this state, uh, um, a lot of it's federal dollars that are coming in to balance the budget. But now most of it is sales tax. Our income tax has actually dropped. That's a recipe for disaster in an impending recession. My answer would be we need to now we need to get our assets uh, like oil, gas, and all the reserves and, and uh, build up that economy, which could help us be um, stronger through this recession, uh, which is clearly coming. We are not getting out of this. Uh, 2024, the next governor of Ohio is going to be stuck with a horrible recession, uh, and we're just not prepared for it. Your background is being a CPA, from what I recall, and I I think you carried that training and and that view of the economic life of any government agency uh, through through Congress and now coming back to Ohio. Uh, So I I think personally that's a, a great ability and, and a great background to have when you're looking at budgets that are uh, overspending or supposedly overspending. When you look at the Florida budget and the other budgets that have a larger population and a lower budget, what are some of the fat spots here in the Ohio government scheme that you, you think should be trimmed out? And we're going to be running out of time. We're going to take it. But let's hold that idea for a moment. Uh, because that's going to be critical to have us uh, here in Ohio survive the, the next rounds of economic exchange. We're uh, talking to Jim Renacci. He's a candidate for the governor of the state of Ohio. He's on the Republican primary ballot for this coming Tuesday. We're going to be back with Jim talking about budget issues here in Ohio, so don't go away. You're listening to Nick Phillips with Kathy Lux here tonight on The Advocate here on WHK. Don't go away. We'll be right back. And now, back to The Advocate with your host, Nick Phillips. Welcome back, Cleveland. Nick Phillips with you with Kathy Lux here tonight talking to a Republican gubernatorial candidate for the state of Ohio, Jim Renacci. Jim, thank you as always for joining us. And can you hear me, Jim? I can hear you. Oh, yeah. very good. You're with us. All right. I just want to make sure. Very, very quiet. Uh, before the break, we were talking about the economy, and uh, it's it's clear that Ohio, like the other states and people in the United States, will be facing some tough economic times, more likely than not. Not guaranteed, but it's out there. Uh, and, and the question uh, I had earlier was, uh, looking at the other states, like Florida, that has a larger population and a smaller per capita budget, uh, what are they doing right that we're overspending on? Well, let's remember that the state really only has four major spending areas. 
Medicaid, roads and bridges, education and prisons. Uh, so when you evaluate those four spending areas, mm-hmm. it's pretty simple to see. Uh, number one, Medicaid now, uh, in, under Governor Strickland about 14 years ago, a Democrat, Medicaid was 17 percent. Uh, uh, under Governor DeWine, Medicaid is 52 percent of the budget. So that's a big, big number that needs a good, good, strong look at. Uh, but let's also look at uh, prisons. Um, there's only four or five states in the entire United States that still run their own prisons. Most of them have privatized it. That's a big number that needs to be looked at. Roads and bridges, of course, that's the lifeblood of our economy. We need to make sure we have those dollars available. But the last two governors have actually squandered uh, dollars. Um, I'm not sure if you heard, you know, Governor Kasich stole the turnpike, uh, which he thought was a good move, uh, took all that cash and used it for roads and bridges. The problem was that was a one-time lump sum payment that is now all used up. Now we don't own the turnpike anymore, and those revenues are going elsewhere, but we don't have the dollars for roads and bridges. So we, he actually has put the state in a little bit of a, a long-term problem when it comes to roads and bridges that we'll have to correct. And then finally, education. Um, look, uh, in 10 years, we will have the least amount of 18-year-olds ever in the history of the state of Ohio. Well, we all know that the 18-year-old is who fills up our high schools and our colleges, yet we continue to still have the same amount of colleges, the universities, the same amount of high schools, and the same amount of spending when we know that our, um, if we, you know, that our population growth for that 17, 18-year-old is declining rapidly, we need to get those expenditures under control as well. So if you compare that to the other states, there are your pretty simple answers. We just need to work on them. They, they are not really um, easy political decisions because you have to talk about restructuring, redistricting, and redistricting is not the right word, but mm-hmm. you know what I mean when it comes to um, getting your expenses in line. Uh, and uh, a lot of people don't want to talk about that. So that's the problem. Too often governors and even members of the House and Senate don't want to talk about those tough decisions but these are the tough decisions that are going to have to be made in Ohio. You know, as we're going forward with the economy, we're watching uh, the heartbeat of the economy with businesses, especially small businesses. How, how is that going? Well, look, small businesses are struggling. Uh, you know, the, the Democrats in Washington wanted a $15 minimum wage. We have it now. Um, you didn't have to legislate it. Uh, businesses all around our state now, small businesses, to employ people are paying you know, up to $15 an hour plus signing bonuses. So that is making it tougher and tougher for small businesses to survive. We also have a governor who has allowed our unemployment system to totally um, have serious, serious problems, four or five billion dollars worth of fraud and abuse while people continue to collect unemployment and don't go back to work. Mm-hmm. And then we have the Medicaid fraud system for three, four or five billion dollars over there that, uh, uh, Faber, Auditor Faber has actually found as well, which is also being used to keep people from going back to work. So we have an employment situ- situation where we have so many jobs open and not enough people to fill them, but quite frankly, they're they're able to stay home and collect unemployment, uh, collect, uh, uh, even collect some Medicaid expansion dollars to continue to not have to go to back to work, which is a whole other problem for small business. 
So, Jim, you, you know, talking about small business, and, and my question is so many businesses went under um, with the lockdowns and the mandates, um, and, and, you know, they, they couldn't come back. They didn't come back. And many that did make it through are still struggling so badly. And as you said, um, having difficulty finding employees. But also, uh, you know, there's this whole problem with, with um, uh, uh, procuring the parts they need, goods they need, um, the whole supply chain issue. And so I'm wondering, and, and I know that in the federal government's um, bills to for COVID relief, there was supposed to be money in there for small businesses. I don't know whether that money ever really made it to them or how effective that was. But but at this point in time, what could be done to to get these businesses back on their feet? I mean, for example, I know uh, those in manufacturing can't get the materials and the parts they need to do their part of the manufacturing process, and they're they're sitting on hold. Um, I know that people uh, such as mechanics can't get parts to repair automobiles. Um, and, and do their jobs. So what's your thought on assistance to get these businesses up and running? Well, look, um, I was been in business for 38 years. It's not, it's not always about money. It's about, you know, what we can, what can we do to make the conditions more favorable? We have a tax system that ranks 37th out of 50th, um, by, uh, the National Tax Foundation in Washington, D.C. Uh, we have a state right next door is Indiana that ranks ninth. So believe me, there are a lot of businesses saying, and as I talk to businesses along the I-75 corridor, they'll say, you know, we're better off just jumping over the border and going to uh, Indiana because the economic conditions are better there. So even if you can't, if the supply chain isn't working and if employees, uh, it's tough to get employees, if your economic conditions in Ohio, which most of our economic conditions here rank anywhere from 35th to 50th. So we're in the bottom third um, compared to other states. You don't get any relief. And that's why we are the seventh most left state in the country. People are leaving. Businesses are leaving. This governor will say, we have a business-friendly state. No, we don't. People are leaving. Now, one of the other ideas that I have, and again, these are things we have to start looking at. When I was in Congress, we talked about Lake Erie. Lake Erie, actually, if... um, if you work with the other lakes and, um, you know, the ports all the way out to the Atlantic Ocean, Lake Erie can actually save you seven days of transportation time if we can make sure we shore up uh, that entire transportation system. And we haven't talked about that in a long time, but when you're having trouble getting boats into California, into Washington State, and in, in just like Governor DeSantis said, hey, We'll bring you to Florida. Mm-hmm. I'd like to be able to say, we'll bring you to Ohio, and let's get our port system up and running to where we can make sure that Ohio transportation and the goods and services can come, um, you know, through that port system uh, from the Atlantic Ocean. You know, as we're, uh, we're talking about uh, the problems that we have and you're suggesting some, some improvements, uh, that, that's a good point because I think everybody loves to follow a good leader and a good leader has to have a vision in a few minutes. How do you define your vision for your 
administration when you take over the governorship of the state of Ohio? Well, Nick, that's pretty easy. I mean, look, uh, when I say it's easy, it's easy because you have to have a 10-year vision. None of these changes are going to occur in 10 days, 10 weeks, 10 hours. I I do believe that good governorship means that you have a 10-year vision of how we're going to change our problems. Ohio didn't get in the problems it has today in the last 10 days or the last 10 weeks or even the last 10 years. Ohio's been going in this direction over the last 25 years. I commissioned the University of Akron and Ball State to do a study in 2020, and they have said that it goes all the way back 25 years ago. Democrat and Republican governors have always just said, let's keep doing the same thing over and over and over again. And nobody has looked out and said, no, let's redesign a 10-year plan. And that's what I'm talking about. How do we make a plan work for the next 10 years? Now, I can't be governor for 10 years, but what I can do is work with the House and Senate to put a long-term plan that we can follow. And you know what? Maybe in five years, tweak a little bit here, tweak a little bit there. But in the end, get us to the place we need to be, which making Ohio one of the top 10 powerhouse states in the country. That should be our goal. Excellent. Well, as a final word, we have about a minute to go. Uh, What do you want the people of Ohio to know about Jim Renacci as to why they should vote for him on Tuesday? Well, here's what I tell everybody. I'm a husband of 39 years, a father of 33 years. I've lived the American dream here in Ohio. I came here with nothing, and I built multiple businesses, and uh, and I'm so happy that Ohio gave me that opportunity. I want to give Ohioans back. My con- number one concern is for our children and gran- grandchildren. I want to make Ohio the powerhouse it could be, and it used to be, and it should be. And if you give me the opportunity, put a businessman in there who's been around for 39 years, signed the front of paychecks, not the back of the paychecks, not like Governor DeWine, and at the same time has a vision for change that we can actually make Ohio that powerhouse state it needs to be. Well, excellent. And so, Jim, you, you know, how do you feel about election integrity? Are you feeling good about that? Well, I think it's better in Ohio than other states, but I do think it's an issue, and that's why I say we've got to we've got to look at it and okay. uh, and make sure that we keep our elections secure. Okay, great, Jim. Thank you so much, and best of luck on Tuesday. Thank you so much. Thanks for joining us. We're going to take a short break. We'll be back after these words. You're listening to Nick Phillips here on WHK, the Advocate. We'll be right. Back. Welcome back, Cleveland. Nick Phillips with you with another segment of the Advocate. Uh, Coming up May 4th at Kent State University, it's going to be another memorial anniversary for the shootings at Kent State that occurred back in May of 1970. Uh, With us tonight is from Kent State University, Eli Call, who's a professor of political science at Kent State. He's going to join us in discussing maybe what we have learned from 1970 to present. Eli, thank you so much for joining us. Hi, thanks for having me. Uh, I mentioned, what have we learned from Kent State? Uh, you know, what I, I happened to be there at the time. I was at Kent State. It was my final day on campus as an undergraduate. And I remember the aftermath of the shootings, how everything seemed to be uh, in uh, total disarray. Things were not uh, organized. It was anarchy. And uh, so the the thought was that happened very easily. It happened within one afternoon at Kent State. And now we're witnessing what's going on in Ukraine with the the attacks from Russia 
and how government is and rule of law is in question. Uh, from a political science standpoint, how fragile is our democracies and our tolerance for dealing with people? So I think that one of the largest misconceptions about democracy is that it is something that's inherent and provided to us, and we don't need to work for it. And I think that one thing that we kind of grow complacent within the United States in particular, but also in other democracies across the globe, with that level of comfort in uh, the the rights and protections that we feel under democracy, uh, without acknowledging the ruling bargain and, and the responsibilities that we as citizens have towards that democracy as well. And I think when we grow complacent, we tend to lose sight over what are the potential threats to that democracy. And even more so, I think what we've witnessed is the lack of attention to the potential threats to democracy that kind of go unnoticed. And I think that one of the aspects that is most uh, troubling to me as a professor of political science, but also just a, a citizen who observes people's behavior is this lack of understanding and knowledge about politics and not just the, the systemic level, how bills are turned into law and how laws are enforced, but how the decision to choose who is writing these bills plays a role in how we all as individual citizens have a, a role to play in that democracy. And it, it seems like we've, in political science, we call it the delegate model, where we delegate our political authority to elected representatives who act on our behalf to do the work for us, rather than take a more deliberative role in our democracy and trust that our delegates will do the right thing in, in, in our best interests. And so I think that we have this kind of lag in our understanding of democracy and when democracy and when, when technology improves at the extent that it has over the past several decades, political systems are slower to adapt than the rise in technology itself. And that forces political systems in order to maintain their status quo to take extreme measures. And I think that's one of the reasons why things kind of go out of control and states like the United States in 19... In the Kent State shooting in in 1970, and the Russian, I, I think it's more on the the people who are suffering in Russia under the hand of the Putin regime, and kind of being manipulated into supporting this unjust war in Ukraine. Uh, they, there's not a lot that they know and they're not exposed and pri privileged to, to access this information because they've been under a decade or more of deliberate misinformation uh, portraying what they're living in as ideal democracy when in reality they are uh, being subjugated by a corrupt regime. Um, I think that... I, I think the people in, in Russia are suffering from the same things that we're probably struggling with here, and that's in, in the past we refer to this as, uh, say, government-sponsored propaganda, 
Uh, now we, we sort of clump it all together as misinformation, where we don't know where the source of the misinformation is. But that certainly the information we get, whether it's true or not, it does affect and, and shape our beliefs and how we perceive our, our life. Uh, and so if the people in Russia are being fed their own misinformation based on reality, comparing what they're hearing from a, a realistic perspective of what's going on, they're going to believe what they're fed from a psychological standpoint. So that, that all being said, uh, you know, from the Kent State days when we were in the 1960s, we had the baby boomers coming through college and uh, essentially rebelling against the uh, World War II, post-World War II establishment. Uh, where are we now with the people, the Gen Xers and the millennials who are in charge of things? Have there been much of a change as far as what's important and what's not to democracy? So I think that there has in some regard, but it, there also hasn't. I think that that rise in technology that I mentioned has, has really broadened the scope. And what I've seen, at least seen evidence of, is rather than kind of honing in uh, sentiments aimed at challenge the status quo from a particular angle, the massive amount of communication provides this kind of information overload. And so people in, in the younger generations in particular who are on their phones and, and on Instagram and social media and consuming vast amounts of information about all variety of topics are forced to choose which ones they prioritize and focus on. Hmm. You know, as, as we're, we're talking about the, the theories... Them, the, the meta theory that's going on and in a broader perspective. And I think that's one of the differences I see between, you know, I wasn't around in the 1960s, but my parents were, and I've been taught a lot of what was being thought about during those times and read a lot about what's been, what was being thought at those times. I think that's one of the main differences that I see now versus then is now there are multiple challenges to the status quo, but they're kind of independent of one another and they're not unified against a, a, a core element that they want to see change. They want to see many things change, um, but, but each are addressing the one specific area of specialty rather than an overall systemic level change. And I think that but when we talk about... Yeah, go ahead. Uh, go ahead. Uh, I was just going to say, when, when we talk about change, and, uh, and it's been said that the only thing constant is change, uh, so there's always change in the air. And when we talk about change, I think that in this country, for the most part, we've been able to accomplish change peacefully, without violence. Yet we've been seeing more violence and change, uh, where people will more easily resort to violence whether it's in the streets and the use of guns uh, and demonstrations that are violent, like January 6th with regard to the attack on the Capitol building, uh, where we, we have people resorting to violence, maybe it's seemingly today more willingly and more easily than in the past. Is that a false perception, or do you think we are, as a culture, allowing violence to uh, play more of an active role than it has in the past? 
I think in terms of violence itself as a broad concept, it's probably the same. But what I think is different is the is is the severity of the violence that's played out. And so I think an anecdote that I frequently hear is it used to be you could go out and settle your differences in the parking lot and shake hands afterward, uh, meaning, you know, have a fist fight in the parking lot and then shake hands afterwards and it was done. Um, nowadays, people get shot. And if, even if that is attempted, uh, it results in the losing side or one of the parties becoming so aggrieved that they take the violence and escalate it to the next level, which often ends up in in, a much more severe um, level of violence. And I think that, Mm -hmm. I think that what hasn't changed is I think that, that it's kind of become tolerated that violence is just an aspect of settling differences. When in reality, that it's what comes about is a self-reflection of one's own dissatisfaction and frustration and then that carries over into violent behavior because that self-reflection isn't actually occurring. Um, well, let's hold, let's hold that thought. We're going to take a short break. We're talking to Professor Eli Call from Kent State University talking about May 4th and talking about democracy generally. We'll take a short break. We'll be back after these words. Don't go away. You're listening to Nick Phillips here on WHK, The Advocate. Welcome back, Cleveland. Nick Phillips with you with our final segment of The Advocate for tonight. We're talking to Professor Eli Kahn from Kent State University, political science professor, talking about the status of democracy and with the May 4th shootings at Kent State from 1970 to the uh, incursions and attacks in Ukraine by the Russians. You know, what have we learned over these many, many decades? Uh, professor Call, thank you again for joining us. Thank you for having me. Uh, as we're talking about violence, uh, violence may be always being around and in the shadows, but now there's more of a tolerance of more severe violence. Do you see that uh, as a trend that's continuing, or have we peaked out? Are we going to start going back to where we talked about shaking hands at the end of a robust debate? So I, I, that I don't know. I could see it going either way. And and and. I think that one of the major pressures that is propelling it in the sort of regressive direction where the violence would escalate and it would become more tolerated is uh, the the kind of pressures of entertainment. Entertainment is news. And so I know that there are a variety of websites out there, but just on social media and through TikTok and, and things like that, the violence and fights are being recorded not for um, settling disputes or not for just documenting what's going on, but for entertainment purposes. And the com- and all you have to do is look at the comments section. And, and it's done as kind of this uh, kind of naive, almost childish, infantile sense of entertainment uh, versus seeing these things and being saddened by them and not wanting to consume this kind of... Uh, information and this kind of uh, content. And I think that, that what, what 
could alleviate that problem is maybe a more thorough understanding and dialogue in the public sphere about how watching two people fight outside of a bar isn't isn't entertainment. It's, it should be sad. It should be considered scary or, um, or, or you know, elemental of inadequate understanding and communication in our society. I think getting getting to that level requires more thorough education uh, from the bottom up, from K through 12, all through post secondary education. And um, how, how can you how can you educate people to be civil? I think it starts at a young age, and I think it, it, I mean I think it starts also within the family as well, and it mm-hmm. really poses a difficult question there too because. In the United States, as opposed to a more collectivist culture, um, we have these notions of individual rights. And so telling somebody what they should do regarding their children or their families in their home in their private time uh, is viewed as a violation of their inalienable rights. And so what it, it shouldn't be telling or forcing people to do anything. It should be kind of suggesting, should suggesting ideal ways to handle conflict and dispute mm-hmm. and, and kind of providing a path of least resistance. Because I think that's one of the reasons why violence manifests itself to begin with is because of the desire to take the easiest route if possible. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And, and I think that some people settling yeah. disputes the easiest route that they are able to come up with is the violent route. When when I think back about uh, May 4th, 1970 at Kent State, what I recall, again, in the aftermath, within the minutes following the shootings and where the administration was trying to clear the campus, uh, that uh, the students seemed to be in a mass state of shock where they're all emotionally traumatized by the thing. And everybody seemed, being college students, had something they wanted to say. They felt it was an important moment. And I remember seeing students uh, standing around speaking, either standing on like a milk crate or something, trying to get people around to listen to what they had to say. And it was interesting, again, watching the anarchy in play because it seemed that there was no authority I think we first started seeing that in modern times in the uh, late 1980s when Yugoslavia fell mm-hmm. and we started seeing war-like activities in uh, Bosnia, Herzegovina, and that part of the world, where prior to the violence starting, uh, these were civilized European countries where people could lead a peaceful life. And we see the same thing happening, the unthinkable happening in Ukraine. And, and that's why we talk about Democracy, we, you mentioned right at the beginning that democracy is something we have to fight for and work hard to keep. Uh, it, again, going back, trying to predict the future here, if we're, we see that uh, the political parties in, in this country now are on way far opposite sides of the fence, uh, and I don't think they, I think some of them can't get together to shake hands after a robust debate. Um, mm-hmm. How how can we, what can we do to sort of start pushing back and try to get people back into the civilized mode of honest debate and peaceful resolutions of problems? 
so I, I think that it goes back towards that kind of narrow tunnel vision that I was describing earlier. I think we could somehow convince not just people from different political parties, but just individuals from different worldviews and perspectives to hone in on and kind of adjust their tunnel vision to focus on the things that they have in common with one another rather than the things that make them different or unique. It, it, that could be a start, and they can set up a, a bridge to maybe further understanding in that maybe even come to understandings that some things that they thought they disagreed on, they actually agree on. They just use different terminology or have different understandings of terminology. Um, and and the, the main goal is that everyone wants to have a peaceful existence. It's just people's notions of how to obtain that peaceful existence differ. And if we could start off by building that bridge by identifying the common goals that we all share and building from that rather than building from where we're different. I mm -hmm. think that's, a, mm -hmm. and I think that we have this kind of competitive atmosphere. Now I see it driving and doing my daily commute. I even admittedly am guilty of, you know, having some, you know, competitive attitudes when I'm driving. Um, oh my. <laughs> but it's but it's not necessary, and that's how I kind of calm myself down when I realize that too. It's, right, right. You we'll you realize that. Safely. Yeah, and 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 well, it's just it's one of those things that that it's we feel these outside pressures uh -huh. just because of of it's almost like we're overwhelmed. And I think if we can uh, recognize that everyone else is overwhelmed. Right. We might be able but it's to how, but it's how we handle it, and we have a couple minutes left uh, and looking at today's college students who you you interact with all the time when I think back about the students of the seventies, uh you could use uh, terms to describe them as uh being uh emotional uh being very politically aware, there being a sense of unrest and a desire to be active about the situation. Do you see anything like that in the current students on campus today? Or are they more I passive do. and accepting? I do, but it's also because of, there's a bias behind that because I teach political science. And currently I'm teaching upper-level political science courses too. So most of my students are either majors or taking the courses because it's something that they're interested in. And so, and so these are students who are very socially and politically aware and, and have their stances I think the the difference is, is that the mode of activism that they take often emanates in a more passive, what seems to be a more passive way because they're doing it on the internet and they're doing it on blogs and through social media, not out in the streets, not in a more visible kind of exposed manner, even though the exposure might even be greater because what they're saying and what they're voicing and, and, and the, the, the opinions and the statements that they're voicing are actually potentially reaching a much broader audience um, over the Internet. I think that, but, but I think because of that, there's also this kind of notion that they're kind of telephone tough guys is the old phrase. Um, yeah, yeah. And, and, so, well. and so I don't think that they're, I think that one of the dilemmas is that while I think they are as, as socially active and as politically active, the way that they're politically active is viewed as 
as being as legitimate as, say, going out and participating in a civil protest. And demonstrating more. Well, on that note, I think we're going to have to say thank you very much, Professor Call. And uh, for people, that's 52 years ago, Kent State University, May 4th. Thank you, Professor Call, for joining us. Not a problem. Thank you for having me. My pleasure. And thank you for listening. We'll be back next week, same time, same station. So between now and then, have a safe, healthy, and a wonderful week. Good night. And I sat and watched the Zanzibar sunset, sat and drank my fresh mint tea, with nothing to do until morning, and only my mind for company. Three-star general, Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.